good to see you. Pastor Matt will be back next week. So if you don't like today, come back next week. And <laughs> Just kidding. Confess Christ. You know it's going to be a good one today, huh? Amen. So uh, let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much. We give you glory and praise. Uh, we just want to honor you today, Lord. Speak to us by your word. Um, let it change us, Lord God, that we may leave this place different than when we came in. In your holy name, amen. Amen. So we're continuing through the book of Matthew. We're still in chapter 10. As you remember, if you haven't uh, been listening to the past few weeks, go back, listen to them. Um, so at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus has just selected his 12 disciples. And so the past couple weeks we've been going through basically his instructions to them. So he picked his 12 disciples and he's sending them out. Right now they're going out to um, to go after the Jews and just tell them that the kingdom of God is at hand and Jesus is the Messiah and to get their lives right and repent. Um, he's, they're basically preparing the way for him um, as he goes out. So he's been telling them a whole bunch of stuff and trying to get them prepared for what they're going to experience as they go out. Because they've, they've, uh, they've been with Jesus, they've followed him around, but they haven't actually gone out and done any ministry yet. So we talk about how they were persecuted. Well, they haven't really been done any of that yet. He's preparing them mentally for what they're going to run into. Um, he told them they're going to face persecution. He told them people are going to betray them, that they'll be kicked out of the synagogue. They may even be arrested. But Jesus also said to them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, he says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Amen? So my first point is this. There is a fate worse than death. There's a fate worse than death. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those... Oh, did I, did I even read the verses yet? Oh my gosh. Just dove right into it. Okay, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 through 30. Fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, he, him I will also deny before my father in heaven. So there's a fate worth, worse than death. In verse 28, he said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now hell, the word here uh, in the Greek for hell that Jesus is using is called is Gehenna, which originally referred to a, a valley outside of Jerusalem where some of the kings of Judah worshipped idols and sacrificed their own children by fire to the Canaan god of Molech. That's pretty bad. So you know in the Bible when you hear them talk about how um, there were some good kings but there was a lot of bad kings? These would be the bad kings. <laughs> This is what not to do. Um, 
But it was uh, considered cursed and it was renamed the Valley of Slaughter before it eventually was destroyed by King Josiah. Now, because the Jews were disobedient, or the Israel's disobedient, and um, they would worship false gods and God warned them many times to turn away from their wicked ways and come back to following um, God. He warned them through the prophets. Finally, uh, in their disobedience, they were taken over by Babylon and exiled back to Babylon. So basically, they got taken from their land, brought back to Babylon, and were slaves and captives um, in the land of Babylon for 70 years. So then after their 70 years in captivity in Babylon, they were allowed to go back to Israel, back to the land they were were before. And so when they came back to the land they were at before, they repurposed the Valley of Slaughter um, from a place of infanticide to a, um, an ever-burning rubbish heap. It became a place where corpses of criminals, dead animals, and all types of waste were thrown to be destroyed. The Gehenna Valley was now a place of burning sewage, burning flesh, and maggot-infested garbage. Utterly filthy, disgusting, the smell was sickening, and the smoke burned their eyes. That's the word Jesus chose to use to paint them a picture of hell and being destroyed in hell. Now, I don't know how much of that you've seen or experienced in your life, but it's a vivid word picture. Like, I don't know if you've ever smelled death, but it's the worst smell. And it sticks on you and it sticks in your nose and you can't get away from it. And Jesus describes hell as a place like that. Eyes burning with awful rancid smoke. This image is, is should make you stop and think about what he's saying. Now he says, do not fear man uh, because uh, the worst thing that man can do is kill you. He said, uh, it's interesting sometimes to try to... So in my life, what I do oftentimes is I think about the decisions I make and the outcomes I'm trying to achieve. And so sometimes... Ba- so you can control the decision you make, but you can't always control the outcome of that decision, right? You do something, there's a variety of outcomes that could come out of it. And so, uh, especially in the job I have where you have to make split-second decisions that could have very costly outcomes, and I'm sure you have moments in your life where you're trying to figure out what decision to make, I always think about what those outcomes are, and if I can uh, accept the worst outcome possible, then I can feel fully confident in making that decision. So Jesus is saying, listen, don't fear man because the worst they could do is kill you. But that's the worst thing. That's just the, that's that's worst case scenario is they'll kill you. And I think that in the context of our culture, I know at least in my mind, I have a very difficult time uh, visualizing or putting myself in the place of what it must be like to have a reasonable and uh, expected fear that you could be killed for this decision to follow Christ. I think um, I joined the Marine Corps in 1996. It was the Clinton era. The Clinton era, we weren't in war. It had been 25, 30 years since we went to Vietnam. People had forgotten what war was like. And so when I went, I did not have a reasonable expectation that I would die on the battlefield. Yes, I knew it was possible. I knew that's what I was signing up for. I mean, yes, of course, that could be a possible outcome. It's just not one I expected in 1996. It's like for some college money, maybe some job skills. I didn't, I didn't sign up and then go to work feeling like, hey, you know, today could be the day. 
But in a post 9-11 world, that was a reasonable expectation. When I signed up for the Marine Corps, I didn't expect that to be an outcome. But if you signed up post 9-11, you're fully aware that that could be the outcome. It's a completely different frame of reference to where you'd be coming from. Um, in 2019, I went to India. I actually went to India with my mom and their church. We went on a mission trip. And it was great. Um, we had a team of eight people. We had three guys and five women. Uh, their culture still is one of a more formal culture, too. So uh, men and women got treated differently, had to act differently. Um, but but the, India is a country where they still persecute Christians. And so it, it's not exclusive to Christians because I think the country is only like 3% Christian. It's like 15% Muslim. So the Muslims are catching it hard right now because the president uh, of the country, Modi, he wants to cleanse all of the other religions out they're hindu he wants to go straight back to being hindu and so right now the muslims are catching it the worst because they're a larger population but anybody trying to do ministry there is going to get persecuted um, when you go into the country you're supposed to put down that you're coming in uh, as a tourist because if you're coming in for uh to be a missionary or some other reason then they'll just send you back home on the plane they don't mess around you don't have rights there <laughs> You don't come in and say, no, I was allowed to fly here. No, they say you could, they'll follow, they're the kind of country that will follow you on Facebook and then kick you out if you do anything wrong. That's, that's like real persecution. Uh, we were traveling with a group and um, the, the two other guys on the trip and me were all pastors. Well, two of us were active pastors. One of them was a retired pastor. And so he put on his application as, so I put on my application that my job was a firefighter. He put on his application that he was a retired pastor. And he got pulled into secondary for a six-hour interview. And I'm thinking, did you not miss the part where they told us to put tourists on here? Did you? He didn't want to lie. Okay, that's, that's cool. He didn't want to lie. But he got pulled in and he had a lot of explaining to do. So we're there and we're in India and um, we had to split up the team a lot because you can't travel in a group of eight white people because you draw a lot of attention. What are eight white people doing traveling through our country? They might want to ask more questions. So we so we try to stay low key. Um, we were preaching in a lot of different areas. So the men got to we got to pull out and preach. Uh, we went hours from the compound. We were uh, we were out in some villages that were um, right around the forest. I'm talking about like forest with tigers and elephants in it. So, well, how often do you see an elephant? And it happens like they may have an elephant charged through the village. And you know what you do to stop an elephant? Nothing. You just get out of the way. It blows my mind that that's their reality. That they're out there gathering sticks in the woods and making charcoal. And they have a very real fear of getting eaten by a tiger. I was looking too. We drove through this forest for an hour. And I was just like, what if, right? What if I saw a tiger? I said, well, there must not be very many of them. They're like, no, no, no. There's probably 30 or 40 in this forest. Yikes. So we're out there in real life and, and you know, you're driving around and there'd be like, um, a check post, a checkpoint, which really isn't a checkpoint, it's a shakedown. That's the, they, they stop you and they don't have any credentials or authority. They're just stopping you, finding out where you're going and they have guns and stuff and what they're waiting for is for you to bribe them. So the, uh, our missionary would bribe them really quickly. 
You know, as soon as you see the checkpoint coming, he's digging money out of the console because like he's already prepared. And he pulls up, and they pull down. They say something. I mean, they must be saying like, "What? What are you doing? Or where are you going?" And he just give them the money like this. And he goes, "You give them the money." And he goes, no, 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 like that. And then we just drive on because the longer we sit there, and the more questions we have to answer, and the more trouble we give them, the more likely they're going to figure out what we're doing and just cause trouble. So we're out there in these little small villages and stuff. And I remember this one, we had, uh, we had gone through the forest area and then we're, we're just deep. There's like fields and open space and houses are scattered and we get way deep and there's this beautiful church out there. It's probably about half the size of this room and it was stone and a corrugated tin roof. And some Baptist church in the south somewhere had built this for them. And, and it was beautiful. And so we were talking about what it's like to do ministry in India and the persecution that they face. And so they were telling us this story out here. They're telling us this story of how there was this pastor who on a Saturday was kidnapped. And they slit his throat and they hung him from the rafters of a church. Not the one we were at, but a, a, their, their church. And so when the congregation showed up on Sunday morning, that's what they found. I, I can't connect my brain to worrying about whether I'm going to get kidnapped and hung from the rafters. And then we're coming back from one place on a different day. And we're driving towards this town and there's this um, kind of a, I guess you'd call it like a neighborhood or so off to the left. And, and there's monkeys everywhere, which was crazy, but it was right by the monkey temple. So it kind of makes sense. Um, so we drive through this town and I, we didn't see anybody. And there's this, you know, center like... Um, like well type thing in the middle. And we're driving through the town and they're telling us about how in, uh, in this neighborhood, they're telling us about how there's this, uh, this family that got saved and they were, you know, evangelizing to their neighbors and stuff and they had been saved. And then one day the town got so fed up with it, they just came and dragged them all out of their houses and killed them all, beat them to death. I'm like, so really, should we be in the neighborhood or are you saying like here or? But in India, it's a reasonable expectation that your life in Christ could get you killed. And I know for us, it's a really hard concept to connect. But Jesus is talking to the disciples because he knows that they will be facing a similar situation as they go. There's places out there in the world, many places, where you could get killed for your faith. In the 1040 window, 1040 a.m., pray for them. And so uh, we look at Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, didn't, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, uh, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or slaughter or I mean or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I know you've heard uh, we are more than conquerors verse before, but I love to hear these verses in context. We are more than conquerors. Uh, we can do all things. When you look at them in context to what Paul is saying when he said them, he's saying uh, tri- uh, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and the sword. But we are more than conquerors. Now, I'm not saying that it won't work for trying to defeat the other football team. I'm not saying you can't ride it on your shoes, but I'm saying in the context of scripture is talking about a little bit more than that. Now we're told to fear God, the one who could destroy your body and soul in hell. Psalms chapter 147 verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Godly fear is having an utmost adherence uh, utmost adherence to, awe and reverence for, highest respect possible uh, of his person and his power. God should be your only concern and you should want to please him only. Now, in terms of godly fear versus man fear. So, uh, the fear of man is the fear of what man could do to you. But think about it. It's really not that much different. Because when you fear man, what are you fearing? The consequences, the outcomes, if, if they're going to like you or punish you or, or what's going to happen. You give them a little bit of honor and respect. You say, oh, I don't want to offend my boss. Why did you want to offend your boss? Because he's got power, right? So when it talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not intended to be a, a fear of the punishment, but it's a fear recognizing that there's consequences for your actions. It's a fear giving him the higher utmost respect and honor and glory. And so really, that's not what you're supposed to be doing for man. That's what you're supposed to be saving for God and God alone. Now, the fear of the Lord should not make you paranoid, worried, or anxious, or feeling like you're walking on eggshells. I mean, I think sometimes we get this idea uh, of this idea of the fear of the Lord as if uh, God's just like following you around in a cloud, just ready to whack you when you do something wrong. Have you ever had a boss or somebody like that where you just felt like you're always just kind of treading lightly, walking on eggshells, uh, don't know how they're going to be that day, their mood swings, some days you walk in and they're in a good mood and everything's okay and they're, they're oh yes, this looks like a great plan and then other days they're, they're just angry and no matter what you say, they're just, you know get out of here and that's terrible and I had, you know, I had those, um, I was talking to a, a guy before who had been threatened to get written up like three times in one day. It's like, for, for what? And so the, the idea of being around somebody like that is unnerving. You're always worried about someone's going to punish you and write you up and you make one false move and the whole thing's over. You're going to get fired. God doesn't want you to feel that way about That's not what it means to have godly fear. He's not going to burn you on a technicality. He's not following you around, waiting for you to make one single mistake. I don't think him talking about hell here is supposed to be a threat. I think he's only reminding you of the grave consequences of sin. 
It should keep you from becoming lukewarm and complacent in your faith. Like, like scared straight, right? Like, I want to explain to you and show you the vast consequences of sinful behavior so that you will not want to do it. So that you won't casually go down that path and one day wake up like, oh, how did I get here? It's like, no, I fear the Lord. I respect him and I'm in awe with everything that he does. He's saying, here's some consequences. I am not going that direction. When I was a, when I was a kid, when I was uh, uh, in the youth group, when I was a kid, I once asked my youth pastor, because, you know, you're trying to figure it out. Like, where are we going with this faith and what does it look like? And I'm always trying to draw connections with things and what does this thing look like? And so I asked him, I said, well, where's the line between what is sin and what is not sin? Like, where's the line? And, and he said to me, and I always remember it, he said, the goal is not to find the line, but to stay as far away from it as possible. And the truth of hell should help you do that. Hell is the consequence. How close do you want to get over to that point? Right? How close do you want to be to cross the line? Now, bodily harm is bad, but spiritual harm is worse. Psalms 27, 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. My second point is this. You are valuable to God. He loves you and he wants you on his team. Matthew chapter 10 verse 29 and 31 Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Some it's easier than others. Ha ha ha. That's a good joke. That's not to be offensive. I just, Tim, it's much easier to count the hairs on your head. I'm just, I'm a realist. Just kidding. But the very hairs on your head are counted and all numbered. Do not therefore, do not fear therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. God cares about the details of your life. He does. Um, so uh, back to India. India is one of the only countries that still has a, a legitimate caste system. Uh, Now, caste system is where uh, everybody has a particular value based on their status in society. So if you're really rich or a politician or something like that, you're way up here on the top. And if you're a peasant, uh, homeless, uh, poor, you're way down here at the bottom. Now, uh, in in our country, it looks more like a staircase. Like you may be somewhere, but there's a path somewhere to get to another level. Now, you may be up here and destroy your life and follow the stairway down. Or you may be down here and work really hard or find some this or that or marry up. Some of us married up. And then you work your way back up the staircase. But in India, it's more like a building that doesn't have a staircase. And you're on a floor and there's no way to get to another floor. You can't go up. You can only go down. And so... Um, it's really important when you're dealing with people from um, different cultures to kind of understand the context of which they live, how they uh, how they uh, learn what their life is like, um, the experiences they've had, how it shapes where they are. Because think about this. How can you get somebody to salvation in Christ if you don't even know where they're starting from? 
And actually, it's pretty relevant to where we live because we have diversity in our country. And so to be able to put yourself into somebody else's shoes and understand the experiences that they've had is supremely valuable and important to you. And if you're not in the habit of doing that, do it. Now, in India, I was talking to them, okay, so if you're in the peasant class, then what are you supposed to do about it? If you don't have the ability to move up, then, you know, because we always think of like a future and a hope. There's a lot of places in the world where there's no hope and there is no future. And so I guess the idea is, in the Hindu religion, is that if you're in the peasant class, all you can do is try to be a good a person as possible. And then when you die, hopefully you'll get reincarnated to something better. There's your hope. Good luck with that. Now, I'm not saying I believe in reincarnation. I'm just saying that's the context of their culture. That that's the, what they look forward to. Now, I don't know what happens if you're really bad and you're a peasant. I don't know what you come back as. But I, I don't think I want to know that. Maybe a cockroach or something. I mean, because if you're the lowest of the low already and you're already considered worthless and a throwaway with no value, no future, no opportunity and have nothing, then where do you go from there? Now, what's interesting, too, is they have a lot of gods in the Hindu religion. Like a lot of gods, like three million or something like that. So, of course, my brain went to, okay, help me understand how a person worships three million different gods. Because there's only so many hours in the day, right? <laughs> and like, no, 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 no. You don't worship all of the gods. You just worship the gods that reside in your class. So if you're like working class, uh, maybe like a cop or something, you would worship like the God of power and the God of authority. If you're uh, wealthy in the wealthy class, you worship the God of money and riches and prosperity. Um, and if it, where you find Christianity in Jesus, Jesus is a God of the peasant class. So if you convert to Christianity, no matter what floor you live on, you'll go right to the basement. Because he's a god of the peasant class. If you're going to worship and live for him, then that's where you belong. So in India, if you convert to Christ, you are literally giving up everything. You're literally risking that if you don't move from your neighborhood, that you may get dragged out and murdered. You're probably going to lose family because they don't want to drop to the peasant class too. You're definitely going to lose your job. So putting yourselves in that, that mind condition... Like maybe there are some of you out there that could lose your job if you're open about your Christianity. But for the most part, that's a reality I don't think we can comprehend. Living in a place where you could lose absolutely everything, literally everything. And that's the consequence for uh, becoming a Christian in your Christian faith. That's a, that's a big deal. So when you're there and Jesus says, talks about his care and his provision... Um, these words mean a lot to people in those kind of situations. It's hard for me to understand how much it must mean to them to hear a verse like Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 27. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, uh, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
And I've talked to some some of those people, that some of the missionaries I'm thinking of specifically, where they, when they got saved, they got thrown out of their village and their house and disowned by their parents. But here's the blessing, is that that person who I'm thinking of, uh, he kept at it, and his parents eventually converted to Christianity. And I met them too. Sweet old people. Sweet old I couldn't understand a word. They didn't speak English. But we got to sit there and drink tea. Weak tea has milk in it. It's a totally different experience. But it was wonderful. Now, there's a, there's few verses that display God's love for us better than this verse in Romans. And this was my dad's favorite verse. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely... For a righteous man would one be willing to die. Yet perhaps for a good man, a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a significant thing. Why we were worthless sinners, antagonists to God, his enemy. He sent his son to come die for us so that we might have salvation and a relationship with God. Be confident that God loves you and he cares about you and he has a plan for your life. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Be confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And Psalms 139 verse 13 through 14 says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My third point. Because you don't fear man, confess Christ with your words and your life. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now confess means to declare, acknowledge, profess, or admit. In these verses, it pertains to a behavior, uh, a behavior pattern or lifestyle, not to a single confession or denial. And I think that's, um, when we hear something like that, I know for me, I've had those experiences in the past where I say to myself, well, if I confess him, then I'm good. I'll go to heaven. If I deny him, then he's going to deny me. And so you kind of walk around a little bit worried uh, about your day-to-day. Like, for instance, I went to the auto mechanic the other day. It was a Wednesday. I'm like, I don't mind a little bit of small talk, but when, like, the cashier or somebody wants to push it towards, like, hey, so what are you doing for the rest of the day? Do you have the weekend off? Do you have any plans for whatever? I'm always like, ah, like, I don't want to talk about that. I always say no. You got big plans for today? No. What you got going this weekend? Uh, no. I got nothing. <laughs> this is like my knee-jerk reaction. But then I think in context of this verse, I think, you know, if you confess Christ, you're good. If you deny Christ, you're going to be bad. And so I was there, and um, so the, the cashier gal asked me, said, it was Wednesday. She said, oh, she got big plans for the rest of the day? And I was like, church. She was like, Okay. <laughs> it was the most awkward pause ever. And so, like, my brain's like, what else? Just say something else? Like, should you elaborate? Like, and I was like, it's it. It is what it is. I took my keys and I left. But do you ever have that feeling, like, in that moment, if you're like, no. 
You walk out like, oh, I denied Christ. I hope he doesn't come back right now. I'm done for. One more opportunity. Can I go into another store? I just wanted to tell you I'm going, I'm going to church tonight. You know? I said, yes, I was good all the way through church. No, but my point in saying that is that it's, it's not, uh, the, the context of what Jesus is trying to say is it's not this singular decision. He's not trying to bust you on some kind of technicality. He's talking about a lifestyle of denying Christ or uh, affirming Christ. And if you look at uh, some examples, you could look at the uh, apostle Peter and you can look at Judas. Because you have Peter, first of all, what's interesting about them and his examples is they're both in the same camp. They were both uh, followers of Jesus. They were both disciples. They both were empowered to do ministry by Jesus. Thus, they're both listening to Jesus speak this to them right now. So you got Peter, one of the most famous denials in all of human history of Christ, right? We all, that's, if you know one thing, well, not one thing, but if you know things about the Bible, one of the things you know is that Peter denied Jesus three times. I mean, one time's bad, right? We already talked about that, but three times you're done for. Can you imagine that being your legacy? The only thing worse than that in the Bible that I think is Rahab the prostitute. Like, is she ever going to live that down? Can't she be like Rahab the redeemed by now? But no. So Peter denied Christ, right? But then he recovered. He denied him in the moment, but then he recovered. And he became one of the biggest drivers of the gospel into all nations in the future. One of the reasons that we are even sitting here today has to do with Peter. He recovered, right? But then you look at Judas. Judas walked the same steps that Peter did. He was trained by Jesus too. He was sent out. I assume as he was sent out, he confessed Christ to people. I assume since he's been sent out to do ministry, that he went out to do ministry. He certainly was seen in the group of them, certainly identifiable with Christ. But then when it came down to at the end, he turned Christ over to be killed. He sold him out and he's in hell. So you see that his, it's not really about some kind of technicality or some kind of special words or liturgy that you're trying to say. You're not trying to outsmart God. You're not saying, Hey, listen, God, I said these words. I came up when I got saved and the pastor said, say this. And I said that. So I'm good. You can't boot me out now. The Bible says I confessed you. I confessed you. You're not going to get in or out of hell or in or out of heaven based on a technicality. We're talking about heart condition. We're talking about your motives. We're talking about uh, what drives you in your life. The, the thing about it is you're not going to get over on Jesus by just trying to follow the letter of the law. That's the problem the Pharisees had. Remember that? He knows your heart condition. He knows what's driving those decisions you make. And that's the important part. That's the part that you should really be focusing on. It's not a formula. Don't look for exceptions of the rule or focus on far-fetched scenarios using them as an example. Well, I like what you're saying, Pastor, about confessing Christ. But what if I was a mute? No, no, if I was a mute, then I couldn't confess him. It's just confess him with your words, but then I wouldn't be able to speak it. So, so maybe that's not true. Come on, people. Really? Well, I said the words. I'm good. You can't say that I didn't. 
Don't start looking for excuses and technicalities. Oh, I, uh, you, you know, I, I just got saved. Wow, that was great. I just got saved. I got to go tell somebody about it. Oh, I got hit by a bus. You're going to go up there and who's up there? St. Peter, right? At the pearly gates, right? We all know that, that there's a big cloud and St. Peter's standing at the pearly gates. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't know that. Uh, so you show up at the pearly gates and you're like, listen, Peter, here's the deal. Like, I, I love Christ. I just didn't get a chance to tell anybody about it. And Peter's going to be like, mm, sorry, man. Like, I know exactly how you feel right now. I've been there. But um, the rules say you have to actually confess him to somebody and you didn't do that. So sorry, nothing I can do. Hands are tied. Don't look for stuff like that. That's not the point or the purpose at all. And you're confessing Christ. Now, confession of Christ requires an understanding and believing that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Then telling others that you accept those concepts that are true in the Bible. Then living your life like you actually believe it. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He is God's son. He is God himself. Three in one. Holy Spirit, God, Jesus, all God, all together, all separate at the same time. You are a sinner. You need a savior. Jesus Christ is that only savior. He came to save us from our sins. We are saved uh, by grace through faith in Christ. You believe that. You live by that. And you tell somebody about it. That's your confession. You can't just say the words and expect that to mean anything without the heart condition change on the inside. Be focused on honoring and obeying the Savior, not striving to achieve 100% of the minimum. Now, confessing Christ boldly may not look the way you think it would. Now, I, when I, growing up, and not so much now, but growing up, the picture of uh, confessing Christ boldly or preaching the word looked like somebody standing on a street corner with the Bible, like, you know, you need to turn your lives around and give your life to Christ and all that kind of stuff. And um, now I think it can work and be effective. But what I've seen personally is most of the time it's somewhat off putting and pushes people away. Or at least that's what happened when I did that one time. <laughs> Wasn't very effective. But that's okay. That is confessing Christ. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what I'm saying is that if that's your only vision of what it looks like to boldly confess Christ, you need to broaden your vision of what it looks like to confess Christ boldly with other people. Part of the time when we were in India is we got to do some teaching, the, the men did, um, some teaching with the SAIL students. SAIL stands for uh, South Asian Institute of Learning. Uh, it's basically like a missionary Bible school to, to teach you how to be a missionary and go sell, sell, uh, share the gospel. And so these uh, young men, probably most of them were in their young 20s, uh, would come from their own countries, surrounding areas. Where we were at in India was, I mean, our hotel was probably 300 yards from the gate to Bhutan. Bhutan's a closed country. They don't accept evangelism or Christianity there. 
And so uh, there's Bangladesh was really close. And then, of course, most of India and well, all of India is close to being Indian India. And so these students, there's about eight of them. They were from different places. And so the goal was to uh, teach them up and empower them so they could go back and teach their own people in their own countries. So as, as powerful as it is to go to somebody else's country and preach Christ to them, it is so much more powerful to equip them to preach Christ to their own people because they understand their culture, their language, all of that stuff. How much more impactful would it be to know somebody who understands your entire situation telling you how Christ changed their lives rather than some guy coming from some other country who really doesn't understand what you're going through or what you've been through, right? So that was one of the coolest things I've done, and I really appreciate it. So... In my effort to understand them and what they're going through and how they're trying to work this out, um, I was talking to a couple of the young men from, from Bhutan. And so Bhutan's a close country. It's, it's really interesting because it's not illegal to be a Christian. It's just illegal to talk about it. So you can't evangelize. Now, if you want to be a Christian and be very quiet and just do your own thing and not let anybody know about it, that's okay. And so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so if... It's illegal and you can get arrested just even being accused of evangelizing. So you don't even have to evangelize to somebody. Somebody in the neighborhood or neighbor, somebody's like, I think that they're telling people about Jesus. The police can just come and arrest you indefinitely. I don't know when you'll get out. You don't know how long you'll be there for. It's not like they have to have some kind of trial like was he, wasn't he? Nope. You, you, somebody said you were, you were. So I was trying to figure out how on earth are you going to go evangelize or or confess Christ in a country where you're going to get arrested if anybody even accuses you of evangelizing. And so they were talking about how it works is you, you go there and you just work on building relationships with people. If someone's in need, you help them. You, you serve them. You help them. You build this relationship. And once you have a bit of a relationship going, then you can start talking to them a little bit about Jesus and Christ, knowing full well that they could immediately turn you in and you will, I guess, essentially lose everything as you go to jail and just be in jail. Now, if I was there, they'd just kick me out of the country. But these guys are going to go to jail for it. So I think of boldly confessing Christ in a scenario where you're trying to work your way into a relationship so that people could see Christ on you and you could explain it to them, knowing that at anybody at any moment could turn you in and you'll go to jail. So imagine if one of them said, well, the only image of being boldly confessing my Christian faith is to stand on the street corner and preach. They'd get snatched up immediately. And then how would the kingdom be better off for that? Who would, who would come to know Christ if they got arrested immediately? So think about that in the context of your day. If, if the only option is not to just stand on the street corner or, or stand in the uh, uh, break room at work just reading your Bible at people, you could build some relationships with them. You could wait. See, here's the thing is I think sometimes we have this fear, unfounded fear, that if people find out that we're a Christian at work or let's say at work uh, or someplace like that, that you will be isolated and ostracized and uh, picked on or made fun of or left out of the group or whatever. And you could. And you could very likely. Or you may be surprised at how that doesn't happen as much as you think it would. 
when you walk into a store, you're talking to the cashier or you're at work or whatever. But watch what else can happen. That when you are out of the closet, openly Christian in your life and at work, then people know who they can come to when their life is going the wrong way and they're in crisis and they know they need prayer, they need some help. You're going to be one they come to. You're going to be one they come to because you're open about your faith and they know that you're a place. And it's, it's probably happened to several of you. And if it hasn't, be open about your faith and watch it happen because it will happen. It's a great thing. But if you're willing to accept the consequences of your faith, people will come to you for prayer in their greatest time of need. It's funny because you may get picked on, and this is what happens to me at work sometimes, is it's these um, these jabs, but they're like actually like positive jabs. Like, oh, somebody comes into work, and oh, I feel a little hungover. We had so-and-so's birthday last night. Oh, have pastor pray for you. You'll feel great. So it's kind of a jab, but it's kind of like they're recognizing that they know where to go when they're in pain and they need help. It's that kind of stuff. It's pretty cool. You should do it. Don't be too proud to be seen as weak if that means that God will get the glory. James chapter 4 verse 10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now you must confess Christ in order for salvation accept believe confess repent you need to accept that you're a sinner who needs a savior you need to believe that jesus christ is that savior the only way to heaven you need to confess that out loud with your life with your words i believe that jesus christ is my savior and that he's the only way to heaven and i believe in him i believe what the bible says about him and then repent turn away from your sins ask for forgiveness and live a new life Romans chapter 10, verse 8 through 11. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, uh, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart one believes unto righteousness and with your mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Put that through the filter of it's a heart condition, not a, a liturgical word technicality, and you're getting in the right place here. First John chapter four, verse 15 through 16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So finally, confess Christ and preach the gospel proudly. It leads to your salvation in eternity. You should not be ashamed of this gospel. You should be wanting it to share with other people because it has saved your life. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I'll end this. This is my last verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For in... For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. So come out Wednesday night, this Wednesday, uh, youth takeover. Pastor Jeremy's going to be preaching this verse. And you can find out more about what it means to live and not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you bow your heads?
Now, if you're here right now, and this is the, uh, you're in this place, and you've decided that you want to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. I'm not talking about uh, a rededication. I'm talking about the very first time. You've heard what the gospel is. You've heard what Jesus has to say, and you want to make that commitment today. If that's you today, this morning, we want to pray with you. Um, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand with me so we can pray with you. We can connect with you and bring you into the family of Christ. Praise God. Now, if you're here in this place and you've been far away from Jesus, like like reprobate, like you turned away and you walked completely away and you're here and you're back and you want to be back in the fold of Jesus Christ, you want to tell him, I confess you today. I want you to be the soul of my life. If that's you in here today, amen. Do not walk away from here without doing that and making that commitment. Your life will be changed. He accepts you back. He loves you. He wants you back. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much. We give you glory and praise. Lord, walk with us as we walk from this place. Give us the the courage to confess you boldly in our situation, Lord, in your holy name. Amen. Amen.